Please turn with me now in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. As you're turning kindergarten through second graders, you are dismissed for children's church. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, not, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Hey, when I was a, a teenager, I did some really silly things. And what I'm about to tell you, parents, don't worry, I'm going to tell all of your teens not to do this, okay? But when I was a teenager, I did some silly things. I, I didn't get in a lot of trouble where you would think about. But I would do things to just try to push the envelope a little bit and to show that I was invincible. Because when you're a teenager, uh, you feel at times uh, like you're invincible, and there was a few things I did with my friends. Uh, my friends and I would get together every weekend, and we would hang out and, and uh, uh, not only do these things that I'm about to tell you, but we would just hang out and have a good time together. But uh, a couple things we did was we would soap uh, fountains. Uh, we would get you know these Dawn, this Dawn soap, and we would just pour it into the, the, water, uh, the big fountains in front of neighborhoods or apartment complexes. And over time, you would see a bunch of bubbles that would flow into the road. Um, another thing we did was we would toilet paper houses. Uh, there was one incident that I'll never forget. Uh, it was late in the evening after midnight, and I, I heard this ruckus going on outside of my house. And I go outside of my house, and I see 14 teenage girls who were rolling my house. And I was able to catch all of them, and I saw all of them, and I said, Well, unfortunately, I'm going to have to get all of you back. And so the next year, me and my friends, we literally got uh, 14 houses rolled within a year span. It was the last house that we toilet papered where we heard the sirens and we had the police come and pull us over or stop us and we're trying to get away, but they caught us and one cop even pulled a gun on me. And I said, never again will I toilet paper somebody's house. There was another thing that, that I did and my mom knows some of these stories, but you don't know them all, so now you're going to hear them. <laughs> But, uh, but I used to jump off cliffs, you know, into the lake, into the water. And usually they'd be, you know, 15 feet, 20 feet. I even got up to 30 feet one time into the lake. And I was always with friends. I was always with people. So I felt good. And other people were doing it too. I felt safe. But there was one particular time I'll never forget. And it actually resulted in me never cliff jumping uh, again. But uh, there's a rock quarry that's marked off now completely off of Henley Street Bridge. It's downtown. And my friends and I got wind of this, and, and we, we saw this big caution tape that said, basically, do not enter this premises. Well, I dared my friend. I said, hey, will you dare me to cross this? He said, yeah, go for it. So I said, okay. He, he not only dared me, he double-dog dared me, so I got to do it. <laughs> so I stepped over the caution tape and I went into this beautiful rock quarry where I saw other teenagers swimming. I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm not the only one doing this. Uh, and, I, and I look up and I see a couple different levels of jumps. And I saw that there were markings at each of these levels. 
There was one that had, you know, 35 feet, one that had 65 feet, and another had 80. Well, I went over to my friends, and I said, okay, seriously, if you guys dare me to do the 65-footer, I'll do it. And they said, well, we, we dare you. Go ahead. Just do it. Let's see what we got. See if you had the courage to do this. I said, sure, I got this. So I get to the edge of this 65-foot cliff, and I'm shaking a little bit, but I didn't want them to see that I was shaking. And I, and I just got, got the courage and mustered up the courage to jump. I jumped. Well, when I hit the water, it felt like I was hitting ice. It was so hard. And, and I hit it, and right when I hit it, I felt this tingling feeling in my legs, almost all the way up to my chest, and it completely knocked the breath out of me. I was somehow able to pull myself up from under the water, and I fortunately had a friend there that was swimming to make sure that uh, we were okay, and he helped me get to the shoreline. It was at that moment I said, I'm never doing this again, and I'm never telling my mom until today. <laughs> but I, I bring this up because there was a rule, there was a, a boundary, and I wanted to test the limits. I wanted to cross that boundary, and then I wanted to, uh, to show my friends what I could do. Well, it almost killed me. I could have been paralyzed. It turns out a few weeks later, I had a, another friend who jumped the 80-footer, and he tore his ACL. He was one of our star football players. He was out the whole season because he jumped off of that 80-foot cliff. I wish I had known because I would have told him, don't do it. But I bring this up because there were rules for my benefit. But I didn't see it. It was for my benefit. Instead, I wanted to test the limits, and I wanted to push the envelope a little bit, and and it could have taken my life. It could have paralyzed me. I bring this up because as we look at the law of Moses, the, the covenant of Moses, we're, we're really going to talk about how it was a covenant of law. And God gave us this covenant to set parameters and boundaries for us. He, he gave us a law so that we could stay within that law and it would be pleasing to him and it would keep us safe from harm's away, it would protect us. It would help us as we journey through our Christian life. So as we look at the covenant of Moses, there's, there's going to be two things I'll be talking about this morning. The first is that the covenant of Moses is part of the broader and greater covenant of grace. The second thing is that the covenant of Moses, it points us to Jesus. So the covenant of Moses, it's part of the covenant of grace. When you think of the covenant of Moses... What probably stands out to you is this extensive legal requirements and sacrificial system that John read just a few minutes ago from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Oftentimes, when you think about the, the Mosaic Covenant, you think about the Ten Commandments, or you think about the laws that followed the Ten Commandments. And it's easy for us, as we, as we hear the term Mosaic Covenant, or the law of Moses, uh, to think that back in the Old Testament, if people just obeyed the law... And if they just follow God's commandments, then they would be right with God and they would be in heaven. It would be easy for us to think that, but it's a wrong way of thinking. Because ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have seen a pattern of God's covenant of grace unfold throughout the rest of Scripture. In that, there was a promise given to Adam and Eve that out of the line of Eve would come an offspring who would not only deliver his people from their sin and bondage, but he would also defeat Satan. 
Genesis 3.15 is where you first see Jesus mentioned in the pages of Scripture. Following that promise, we see a covenant of grace that unfolds beautifully throughout the rest of the Bible. And the Mosaic Covenant is part of that greater covenant of God's grace. What we need to understand is, is that if it weren't for the grace of God, none of us would be here today. If it weren't for the grace of God, none of us would be in heaven when we die. It's only by the grace of God that we are saved. It's only by the grace of God that we are changed and can experience a new joy and a new life. It's only by his grace. And what I love about the Mosaic Covenant is it starts with that promise and with that truth of God delivering his people from a time of bondage. Exodus chapter 20, it starts by saying, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he goes on to give them rules. You shall have no other gods before me and not make a graven image after me. What I love about this is that it starts with the grace of God. In that, God is saying, I am your God, you are my people, and I have initiated a relationship with you, and I am the one who delivered you out of slavery. I am the one who gives you grace. You can't earn your way to me. I have to come to you, and it's only by my grace that you are saved. What we have to understand here when we talk about covenants, especially that of the Mosaic Covenant, is that salvation precedes obedience. What I mean by that is God delivers us and he rescues us from our sin and our misery. He sets us free and then we obey. We don't obey and then we're set free and we're saved. We're saved by the grace of God and then we obey. Salvation precedes that of obedience. And so as we talk about the covenant of Moses, we have to understand that it is God who delivers his people. Think about the story of Exodus. God delivered his people by sending plagues upon the Egyptians. God ended up taking his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And what did he do to the Red Sea? He parted the Red Sea. And then he put the Red Sea over the Egyptians to protect his people. It was all an act of of God. God is the one who does the work when it comes to covenants. He's the one who initiates a relationship with us. He's the one who pursues his people. He's the one who loves his people. And as he pursues us and as he loves us, we are to embrace him and then obey him. Salvation precedes that of obedience. I like how Moses wrote these words in Deuteronomy 7 to describe it further. He said, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it, will not, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What is Moses saying here? He's saying that it was God who chose his people. It was God who brought his people out from under this tyrant Pharaoh. It was God who delivered them from them, from him. It was an act of God's grace. So again, salvation precedes that of obedience. 
The second thing we need to understand about the Mosaic Covenant is that the Mosaic Covenant, it builds upon God's previous covenants of grace. So as John mentioned, there's really two covenants. You have the covenant of works that Adam broke when he disobeyed God in the garden by eating from the tree he wasn't supposed to eat from. And because Adam disobeyed the covenant of works, the covenant of works are still intact and in place today. But unfortunately, all of us in this room are sinners and we can't keep that covenant that God made originally with Adam. So we need a new mediator, a new representative Jesus to keep that covenant for us, to represent us uh, in the sight of a holy God. Well, this, the covenant of works is still in place, but God, who is rich in love and mercy, he knew that none of us could keep his perfect standards. So he brought about a covenant of grace. I've already mentioned how he, he gave this promise to Adam when he cursed the serpent and he said, out of the line of Eve will come a seed who will be the representative of God's people and he would keep the covenant of works perfectly. And after Genesis 3.15, we then see God's covenant of grace unfold in stages. Theologians, they use this word called progressive revelation. And when you and I hear the word progressive, it ain't a good thing, is it? We hear progressive when we think, oh, that's a bunch of liberal. You know, that's liberal theology. That's not what progressive revelation in Bible terms means. Progressive revelation is actually a good thing, and it talks about how God's covenant builds upon one another throughout the ages. Whereas a covenant takes place, it just builds upon what was already laid before. It's progressively revealing God's will for his people and his plan and purposes for his people. So as we've already talked about in the series, we talked about how God established the covenant of grace with Adam by giving him this incredible promise about a future Messiah. After that time, every believer after that believed in a future Messiah to come in the Old Testament. But, but things just got awful for God's people because we don't like to obey the rules and we like to push the limits. And so over time, after God established the second covenant of grace with Adam, you see that Cain killed Abel. And then, and then it just got really bad, really bad to where God wanted just to wipe out mankind from the face of, of the world. And he sent a worldwide flood. But because God made a promise with Adam and Eve many years before, he knew that he could not completely, or he knew he would not completely eliminate humankind. So he remembered his promise and he made a covenant with one man, Noah, who was blameless before God. And he said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. And with you and your people, you're going to continue building upon my covenant of grace that I gave to Adam. You're going to continue to unfold my purpose. And so after the waters receded, that nature had been preserved and Noah was able to continue on building upon the covenant of grace that God started with Adam. But again, because people are sinners and God's people are sinners, things got worse once again. And then we get to Genesis 11 and we see the Tower of Babel take place where God's people said, we don't need God. Let's just build our own tower and build it up to the heavens because we can reach God if we just put effort. Well, they did that. God got angry. And what did he do? <laughs> he made them confused and he ended up having them speak different languages and he spread them across the entire world. And as God's people were spread across the entire world, it would seem like all hope was lost. But because God is a God of promises and he's a promise keeper, what did he do? But he, he called an unknown man, Abram, 
who was a non-believer who believed in a moon god. And he said, Abram, I'm calling you to leave your comfort zone and go to a land. And this land is where you will not only have descendants after you, and you'll have your own nation after you, but you will have this land that is similar to that of the Garden Eden of Eden. It's flowing with milk and honey. 14 years after God made that covenant with Abraham, Abraham had Isaac at the age of 100. The New Testament says Abraham was as good as dead when he had Isaac, but it was a fulfillment of God's covenant of grace. Then you go further on from Isaac to Jacob and the 12 tribes of Jacob and all this stuff, and then you see sin continue to take place. And so again, it seems like all hope had been lost once again when the people are in a foreign land in Egypt in slavery. But what does God do? He keeps his word. He doesn't forget his promise. And he goes to this man, Moses, and he says, I want you to be the mediator of my people, and I want you to build upon what has already been set in this covenant of grace, and I am going to establish my law for the nation of Israel. And by the way, the nation of Israel will end up having their own land that I promised Abraham many, many years before you. And we see this all take place in the covenant of Moses. R.C. Sproul, he said it this way, we can be a part of the family of God only because our God makes and keeps covenants. We are only a part of the family of God because our God makes and he keeps his word. So as you can see here, you can see progressive revelation take place from Adam to Noah to Abraham and now to Moses. Next week, we'll talk about David. And then we're gonna conclude this by saying, Jesus, he's it. We're gonna see how progressive revelation takes place in the covenant of grace. I really wanted to preach this sermon series because I wanted you, as you're reading through scripture, to understand how it all fits together. That's why I'm doing this. The covenant of grace helps us fit all the pages of scripture together as one storyline leading up to Jesus, the promised Messiah. So now that we know that the Mosaic covenant is a part of God's covenant of grace, we need to talk about how it points us to Jesus. Theologians, they say that there are three purposes to the law of God for our benefit. The first purpose or the first use or function is that the law serves as a mirror to us. You know, I like to exercise and and when I go to the Y, it's always funny when I see these mirrors all around and you see these guys with little tank tops on and they're just trying to show off and see their muscles as the mirror reflects upon their muscles and their sweat. It makes me laugh. Um, but I say that because what do mirrors do? They reflect the good things and the bad things about you. We look at ourselves in the mirror every morning and we see, oh, there's a booger or oh, there's something in my teeth or oh, my hair's out of place, right? It can reflect all the flaws in us, but we can also see maybe some good things, right? I bring that up because the law, it functions as a mirror in that it reflects good and bad things. Good things in the sense that it reflects God's perfection to us. When we have laws in place and we read the law that God's given us, we can see that this is all set by a perfect God. And we can see, oh, this is part of, his all, of him being almighty. This is part of, of who he is. And so it reflects his perfection the other thing it reflects, though, is it reflects our sin in that we realize we aren't God and we can't 
follow all of these laws perfectly. So again, the first usage of the law is that it serves as a mirror and that it reflects the perfect righteousness of God and it reflects our sinfulness. R.C. Sproul said, the law highlights our weakness so that we might seek the strength found in Christ. Here the law acts as a severe schoolmaster who drives us to Christ. So that's how the law acts, is as a severe schoolmaster who can draw us and lead us to Christ. So again, the Mosaic Covenant, part of this covenant of law, it points to Christ and that it draws us to him. The second use or purpose of the law is that it serves not just as a mirror where it reflects God's perfection and our imperfection, but it also serves as a stop sign, as a boundary, as a guardrail, in that it restrains evil. It keeps evil from getting worse. The law can serve to protect the righteous from the unrighteous. The law allows for a limited measure of justice on this earth. You know, as you're watching the, the war take place, it's tragic. And I know all of us are watching it and seeing it on the news. And our hearts are heavy for the people of Ukraine and all the believers in that part of the world. As I've been watching it, I've been thinking about the rules of, of, of war and the law of war. And you keep hearing about how, oh, they're breaking the laws of war. Well, why do we have laws of war? To restrain things from getting worse. And that's the second usage of the law, the Mosaic law that God gives us, is it keeps evil from getting worse. It's a stop sign. It stops things from going further. The third use of the law is not just to be a mirror and not just to be a stop sign, but it's also to be a guide, it's to be an instrument. Uh, anytime I go to, and it's been a while and I can't wait to go soon, and my birthday's coming up, so Stephanie, you can take me to the symphony. But I love going to the symphony. And the symphony, when you go, you, you hear beautiful music. Violinists, cellists, just beautiful. It's an instrument that really just displays just God's beauty of creation, right? I bring this up because the law is really beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's not a cosmic killjoy. But the law is beautiful in the sense that it, it's an instrument that reveals what is pleasing to God. It's a guide that, that, that reveals what God wants us to do and who God wants us to be. It, it really is used to provide guidance. And so again, as we think about Exodus 20, we think about the Mosaic law, we can see that God gives us these laws not only so that we can see our sin and his perfection, not only so that it will restrain evil, but also it will help us. It will guide us as we go through life. It's not a cosmic killjoy. If you go back to Exodus 20, you can see here, after God said, I've delivered you my people out of Israel, he then gave the 10 commandments. And in verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. And then look what he said in verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Right here, it's very clear, God is saying, all right, people, I love you, and I've given you this law as a guide, as a guardrail, as a boundary marker. If you stay within the boundaries, if you stay within the laws, you 
and generations to follow will be blessed. If you disobey my commands, and if you go around the guardrails, around the boundary marker, then you and your descendants will experience curses. You know, you and I both know of the term generational blessings and generational curses. And all of us can look back on our lineage and at our lineage and see that there's been blessings in our family line and there's been curses in our family line. All of us can probably see that in our own family lineage. Well, it goes back to this promise and commandment. If you obey my commandments, (laughs) you and your offspring, things will go well. If you don't, there's going to be discipline. I say this because, again, the law is for our good. It's for our benefit. And we don't need to see it as something of, oh, here's just a bunch of rules we got to follow. But instead, we need to see it as, well, thank you, Lord, for giving us these laws. Because it does help me from killing myself and hurting myself. Just like that law helped me or could have helped me from nearly killing myself when I jumped off that cliff. It's for our good. It's for our benefit. You know, the other thing that the law is good for, it's good for society. And I think about how our founding fathers, 50 of the 56 founding fathers, believed in a trinity. They were believers. And the number one document that they referred to when they wrote the Constitution and the, and the Bill of Rights was the Bible. You know, as time has progressed, we've seen that our society is drifting further and further away from what was originally intended from our Constitution and the documents written by those who loved the Lord and loved his word. And as we continue to drift away from God's commands and his law and his word, we will be cursed as a society. But here's the good news. If God brings about a revival in us and in his church, and if we continue to love the law of God, then we will see positive change take place in our community and in this country. It can happen. It's happened many times before, and I believe it can happen again. We don't need to lose faith. We don't need to lose heart. Even as times are tough right now, we need to be reminded of God's promises, hold tightly to that, and be reminded that God is a God of revival, and he can revive our hearts, and he could bring about another great awakening in this land. You know, in just a few days, this country is going to be celebrating St. Patrick's Day. And if you think about St. Patrick, there's all these legends about him. And when you think about St. Patrick, what do you think about? Kids, I'm sure you're going to be wearing green on the 17th. Why? Because if you don't wear green, you'll be pinched. So green is a part of St. Patty's Day. Green beer is a part of St. Patty's Day. Pots of gold and leprechauns are associated with St. Patrick, even the city of Chicago, every year on St. Patty's Day, it dumps 40 pounds of its top secret dye into the river every year. So you can probably look that up and see that this week. There are other fictional tales about this curious guy, Patrick, in that apparently he had banished all snakes from Ireland and he got rid of all the snakes. That's a fairy tale. That never happened. There's another fairy tale that he drove a chariot over his sister a few times because she was not doing things right. 
That was a fairy tale too. He didn't drive a chariot over his sister to punish her for her unchastity. There's also something we hear about a lot about St. Patrick and that he used the shamrock to illustrate the Trinity. That's where we get portions of this green idea. But that legend came about many, many hundreds of years after he was even alive. So that may not be the case. So who is or who was this St. Patrick that we commemorate this week? Well, St. Patrick was a man of faith who loved Jesus, but he didn't always love Jesus. He became a Christian at the age of 16. He grew up in a Christian home. And here's the thing. Patrick is not from Ireland. So why do we have green? I, I don't know. But Patrick is actually from England. But he grew up in a Christian home. His father was a deacon. But at the age of 16, Patrick was out and about, and he was captured by these Irish thugs. And they captured him. They took captive, and they put him in in slavery in the late 300s. And then they brought him to Ireland, and for six years, he's in prison under these Irish captives. While he was in prison, Patrick began reading God's word, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And after being there for six years, he found a way to escape. And he escaped, and he went back home to Britain. Well, several years after that, it was 25 years after he had run away from Ireland in the year 432, He ends up looking through scripture and he kept seeing a common theme like the nations will come to you from the ends of the earth or I have put you as a light among the nations or I will make you fishers of men. And as Patrick continued to ponder this theme of reaching the nations and reaching the lost for Jesus Christ, he said, I feel called to go back to Ireland. The very people who treated me poorly nearly killed me and took me captive for six years. He ended up going back to Ireland, and he ended up starting churches, planting churches. He did several other good things, like he helped women claim a voice that they didn't have. In that time in history, women were treated as second-class citizens, and they were having to have arranged marriages because their parents did it a political move just to help their status. When Patrick got into town in Ireland, he began to teach women God's word, and they said, I don't have to do this arranged marriage thing. I can be single for the rest of my life. And he shook things up for the good of women. He also advocated learning and promoted the ascetic life and monasticism. The Irish culture, it didn't place a lot of of goodness on literacy, a lot of weight on literacy. But Patrick helped change that by creating an educational system in Ireland. But perhaps I would say the biggest achievement other than leading people to Christ is that he helped new Christians of Ireland understand the law of God. And he brought about a whole new ethic, a moral ethic that that society of barbarism needed. Because the Irish were known as barbarians as wild and rebellious, and Christians said, I don't want to go reach them because they'll kill me. But Patrick said, God has a plan for these people, and I'm going 
to go and reach them. And because of the impact of St. Patrick on Ireland, Ireland changed dramatically as the people began to follow the laws of God. And guess what? Centuries later, Ireland would come, become the place where they would send missionaries to evangelize much of continental Europe. I bring that up because as the people of Ireland changed, as God rescued them from their barbarism and he changed them, they began to follow God's laws and all of a sudden the society completely changed across Ireland. You know what? That same thing can happen here in America. And God may be calling you like St. Patrick to reach the people here or even across the world in dark places. But he calls us to be the light of the world and to shine our bright light in this age of darkness. You know, what we do know about Patrick is that his ambition and his ministry should be enough to make all of us feel, have a little green, be a little green with envy. <laughs> he was a good man. So as we commemorate St. Patrick on St. Patrick's Day, uh, don't buy into all the legends of leprechauns and shamrocks and green beer, but instead remember why we honor this man. We honor him because he loved the Lord and he loved God's laws. So in the same way, may we, as God's people, love Jesus and love his laws.